I'll invite the rest of you to turn to the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to John. And while we don't hear these words, they're not recorded in the Gospel account, you can think this way. You have one week to live. You have one week to live. That's what's true of Jesus in John chapter 12. And Jesus knew that he had one week to live like no one has ever known they had one week to live. He knew exactly to the moment when he was going to be crucified. It was all part of a greater plan. And when we get to the 12th chapter in the gospel according to John, we're now going to enter into the last week of his life. And everything has been intentional, and make no mistake about it, it will continue to be intentional during this, this final time. John's Gospel account is unique because it gives so much attention and detail to what's called the passion, because it's all leading up to that dramatic event. This morning what we'll do is we'll look at chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, I believe. And as we do so, if you'd like to, to follow the outline I'm going to be following, as we look at those 11 verses, we're going to identify some ironies. Uh, an irony is something that normally means the opposite. Things that don't quite seem right, but they are right. Or things that are right that don't quite seem right. It's, 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 it's in reverse, and the Bible uses irony a lot, and I think we see a lot of irony in the passion of Jesus. And so we'll look at five ironies about Jesus that can help you understand who he is, can help you understand what he came to do, what he is doing, uh, can help you understand why you should worship him and why you should trust him. So I hope learning about Jesus in this ironic account will help you and move you, yes, toward understanding, but move you to praise and honor toward him. That's the goal. That's the end game. I should also say that this morning we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, which I hope is obvious when we have the table up here in front, um, but that will be a fitting conclusion to our study as we anticipate the passion of Christ. We'll then memorialize, we'll remember the passion of Christ, and so it can hopefully lead you to that kind of worship, because it should be worship. Um, I just want to remind you that this is something Jesus told us to do to remember what he did for us. I might also remind you, I don't always, but I'll do it this morning, uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, as we're encouraged to eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus, uh, we are encouraged as well to examine our lives. Uh, we don't want to be eating and drinking like hypocrites who um, don't give thoughtfulness to trusting in Christ to the point where it actually affects our thinking and it affects our living, okay? Sometimes I like to say we're all hypocrites, um, but there's hypocrisy and there's hypocrisy. Uh, here's what I mean by that. I don't mean to preach a sermon about this, but I want you to be thinking about this. We're all hypocrites because none of us live the gospel, okay? No one here lives a perfect life. If the Apostle Paul still calls himself chief of sinners, um, none of us have arrived. There's a gap between what you believe and how you live. There will be until you're glorified, okay? So we're all hypocrites in that sense. That's why we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ. But we're called not to be hypocrites. We're called to be serious about our trusting in Christ to the point where it does affect the way we live and the way that we think and the way that we act. 
remember Romans chapter 6. If we've died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, and we've been raised with Christ to live unto newness of life. So be thinking about these things because they're appropriate to think about whether we're talking about them every time or not. Okay? Okay, John chapter 12, five ironies that hopefully help us to understand Jesus, who he is, what he was doing, what he did, and how we should respond. The first irony is Passover. I'll try to limit them, keep them short. The first irony is Passover. Look with me, if you would, at verse 1, just the first part of it. It says in John chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. And some of you are just joining us, and so you're not going to feel the whoa moment. But let me help you feel that moment. Passover, toward the very end, last week, Jesus goes to Bethany during Passover. It should give us a little bit of a whoa. Wait a second. We've been learning up until this point the Jews are scheming, they're plotting, the religious leaders are plotting to execute Jesus. If there's a place where he doesn't want to be, it's around Jerusalem, unless he's going to be killed. Well, that's what's on task or what's on target now. Bethany is like two miles outside of the city, okay? Passover, that means uh, Bethany isn't a sleepy town during Passover. No, it's right there on the outskirts of Jerusalem and in the surrounding community. Historians tell us, even non-Christian historians tell us, that Jerusalem and the surrounding area could go from a 100,000 people population to a million people. It's teeming with people. There's all kinds of zeal and all kinds of enthusiasm and excitement and liveliness. That's what causes me to say, whoa, this is... This is where you don't want to be if you're Jesus, if you're trying to save your own skin. It's, it's noteworthy. And this is during Passover. Passover, the holiday that is of, of such great significance in the Old Testament. Most of you know about Passover, but if you don't know about Passover, Passover, you ready for this? Means Passover. It's profound, I know. It's amazing. I'm just a scholar among scholars. Passover is Passover. It's remembering the event in Exodus, that great event in the great Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, where God doesn't give the believing Israelites what they deserve. Everyone deserves condemnation. Everyone deserves judgment. It wasn't that the Israelites were inherently better, but they're called to trust God and believe God. And so they would apply the shed blood of the lamb. And so when the angel of death came to kill the firstborn, and by the way, that's what people deserve, not only their firstborn to be dead, but all of their born to be dead and them to be dead. So if you want to talk about fairness, it's actually um, withholding utter fairness. But instead of receiving what you deserve from God, the shed blood representing your trust in God and His promise will lead to the passing over of the angel of death. So you have life. Think about Passover. Think about Exodus. It's deliverance, okay? Exodus is all about God delivering His people. There's a synonym for that, and you know it well if you've been here very long. Deliverance is salvation, okay? They're delivered from oppression. They're delivered from slavery. They're delivered from all the injustices put upon the people of God by the Egyptians. 
So the Jews are called to celebrate this. Remember, God delivers. Remember, God saves. It's about substitution, right? The shed blood of the lamb for the firstborn, substitution. So if you want to use a fancy theological word, because we are in church, it's vicarious. It's in place of. Not only is the Passover, remembering the Passover, the Passover is also, another good theological word for the day, effectual, effective, efficacious. I used that word last week. It works. It's not a, we hope so. No, God promised this happened. Their houses were passed over. Why are we saying all this? Why is all this important? It's important because Jesus, ironically enough, they're trying to kill him during Passover, is called what? Our Passover lamb. He's the vicarious substitute. He is the effective, effectual substitute. We learned about that in John chapter 10. He lays his life down for his sheep and he loses none of them. This is quite extraordinary. It's quite ironic. Here we have Passover. The Jews should be remembering that God saves, God atones, God forgives. And what are they busy trying to do? They're trying to kill someone instead of remembering how God saves them and doesn't give them what they deserve. But then mixed with the irony a little bit more, Jesus is there voluntarily going to give himself so that he can be the Passover lamb. It's wild. It's amazing. It's exciting. It's confusing a little bit. Because irony can be that way. This is wrong. This is right. This is good. We have the benefit of standing so much further on the other side of things. But this was what it was always going to be about. Remember, God didn't say, hmm, I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, and none of it really seemed to work, so I'm going to come up with plan X, or whatever you, F, E, whatever. No, we've been anticipating this since before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus has been talking about his relationship with his father before the incarnation in John. He's the sent one. This is all part of the plan. This is amazing. We've been waiting for this since Genesis 3. No, actually, we haven't been waiting for this since Genesis chapter 3. Long before Genesis chapter 3, we've been waiting for this. This is amazing. Jesus is in Bethany just outside of Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be crucified, but he's going to be doing all of these things because he's our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, by the way. We have redemption through his blood. The angel of death. If you're a believer in Christ, you trust in Christ, the angel of death passes over and doesn't give you what you deserve because of substitution. It's awesome. It's awesome. People say, I don't, don't tell me about theology. I just want, well, it's practical for my life. This is the most practical thing in the world. That God won't hold your sins against you. This changes everything, and now you can live your life. 
And now you can move on with your life. And now you can have joy in your life. No matter what happens, you can. It changes everything. Jesus is that one. It's extraordinary. Let's move on to a second irony in our passage. Irony number two, helping us to understand Jesus, hopefully catapulting us toward worship. Number two, resurrection. How about we're in Bethany, verse one goes on to say, where Lazarus was, he is a resurrection guy. Where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That was the astounding thing in chapter 11. Lazarus, right? He was to be oxymoronic. He was good and dead. Right? King James English. By now he stinketh. Four days dead. Really and truly dead. And here Jesus raises him from the dead. That's that extraordinary chapter in chapter 11. But now, here we have in the same place in Bethany where Lazarus was... Whom Jesus raised from the dead. Keep reading in verse 2. So they were, uh, excuse me, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table or at table it says. I mean, picture the scene. We are having a resurrection party. If you are Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus is in town, let's have a resurrection party. Okay? And they probably didn't decorate the room with Eshtar eggs and rabbits, okay? This wasn't the first Easter. This is a true resurrection party. And, and who are, who's the guest of honor? The resurrector. Jesus, the one who raises the dead. He, he himself said, I am the resurrection in the earlier chapter. So we're going to have the resurrector. Oh, by the way, he's the one who's going to be resurrected. We're starting to get into some ironies. And the ultimate resurrected, right? And for you theologians, because he is the one who is going to be vindicated, but we won't go there this morning. (laughs) That was Easter Sunday. But Lazarus is there too. He's not the guest of honor, but he's the one who has been resurrected from the dead. This is exciting. Makes me wonder what what they would talk about. Probably a lot about Jesus and not a lot about Lazarus. What would you say? You, you, You think about people, I was thinking about it this morning, just trying to sense something of this and thinking about people I have loved dearly who've died. What if what if they were Lazarus? Jesus raises him from the dead, and then we have a resurrection party. What's the dynamic like? Not that it matters, but it's kind of interesting to think about. And I'm trying to have you sense what I want to sense, and these are historical events. Be exciting. We're going to get a little bit of a glimpse into what you might do when we see what is done. But resurrection... But it's also ironic because this is going to be Passover and Jesus is going to be the Passover lamb and he's going to be crucified. The resurrector is going to be killed. That doesn't seem right. And if we look ahead, the resurrected Lazarus, they're going to try to kill him too. What? 
Go ahead and look. If, jump ahead to verse 10. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Very curious. I, I'm, I'm thinking, can a guy get ahead? <laughs> he just he's died. He, now he has new life again. And now they want to kill him because he has new life. Oh, the perversity of the human heart. And I don't mean his there. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. It's one of the reasons they're going to kill Jesus. Doesn't make sense. But we know, we can step back and say, all along this has been the purpose and this has been the plan and Jesus has had his face set toward Jerusalem. And as a matter of fact, we know, it doesn't take away from the badness or the evil of what they want to do, the religious leaders, but we also do in fact know that what happened to Lazarus was only a preview. It, would, it was temporal, temporary. What Jesus is going to secure by his own death and resurrection will lead to eternal life. He's already talked about that. Remember, Lazarus, whether they kill him or not, is going to have a funeral. Two funerals. Because we're not talking about Jesus raising him from the dead in the ultimate, everlasting, eternal sense, which Jesus will do. Okay, let's move on to a third irony. Anointing. Anointing. How about verse 3? Mary, we learn she's a close friend. Jesus loves her and her sister and her brother. Mary, a close friend, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, a nard plant. We'll talk about that perhaps. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She anoints him. The other, other gospel accounts tell us that she anoints his head, which would have been more customary for a guest in a dry and arid land. It was common to do that. You're going to take oil and anoint their head. Sign of blessing. Uh, also just pleasant, and especially if it would have smelled nice. But not only is that happening here, she anoints his head, but she goes further. Now she's anointing his feet, and she's going further. She's wiping his feet with her hair. To the point where, maybe to just jump ahead, um, is it in... No, it's in a different gospel account. It's Mark 14, 6. Jesus calls it a beautiful thing. So this is a positive thing. This is a beautiful thing. It's beautiful because it shows devotion to Jesus... He's the resurrector. They're close friends to begin with, but look what he did for her and her family by raising Lazarus from the dead. And, and yet she does this. This is an act of a servant. But they're friends. She's not his servant. This is someone Jesus has described earlier as loving. 
They had a unique kind of friendship, this family and Jesus. And she's acting like a hired hand, a servant, even maybe below a servant using her own hair. No one deserves this, we might say. Everyone is above this. Unless we're talking about someone who is extraordinary. And Jesus is extraordinary to the point where total humility, total devotion, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what anybody says now. She's not thinking this way, but I'm going to read into it. I don't care what liberal, unbelieving, naturalistic scholars say later and they question my relationship with Jesus inappropriately because he is like no one else. That's what we see coming through with her. It's awesome. No one deserves this sort of treatment. No one other than Jesus, that is. Nard is a funny word. It comes from spike nard. And you do a little bit of reading and you learn that comes from a unique, special kind of plant from northern India. Which is where they are now? No. They're in Bethany. It speaks to the value of it. This is, this is either an heirloom, something that was handed down to this family that's expensive and to be prized, or it reflects their wealth. And it would, it doesn't matter which one it is, it's valuable. It's extremely valuable. We'll hear about how valuable it is when Judas has a beef with it. But the point is, we hold hold back nothing because he's the exceptional one. He's the extraordinary one. And so we hold back absolutely nothing for him because he and he alone would be deserving and worthy of this kind of devotion. We might want to read into it a little bit because we know what's about to come in the next chapter. In the next chapter, we have the so-called triumphal entry. This is what you do for kings and queens and royalty. And he's going to be treated like royalty when he makes the triumphal entry. You you save this sort of thing for that kind of person, the extraordinary kind of person. If we look look ahead just a little bit when she's attacked, if you look at verse 7, it says, Jesus said, leave her alone. Here's the irony. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. I have to read between the lines here and say apparently she didn't use it all. But the offense is that she uncorked it, right? She broke the seal. Now it has to be used. And so she uses it and Jesus defends her and says it's appropriate that she uses it especially because I'll need to be anointed because I'll be dead. The irony of anointing the one who is kingly because he's going to need to be anointed because he's been crucified. The crucified king, that's an irony of, of Christianity. It doesn't seem right. It's not right, but it is right. Right? Let's <laughs> go. There's no one like him.
Let's move on to the next one. Irony number four, virtue. Virtue. Virtue is good. It's good to be good. It's virtuous to be virtuous. But let's go ahead and read verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, you might want to write in your margin, Matthew 26, 8, he's not the only one. So as we all feel good about ourselves because we would have been like the other disciples, it's time to not feel quite so good about yourself, okay? He's highlighted here, but he is not the only one who has a problem with this. Who's about to betray him said, verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, a year's wage? This is super expensive and given to the poor. You know what we, you know what we call this today? Virtue signaling. That's the new label of a very old thing. It's as old as sin. Virtue signaling is what he's doing. To try to make yourself sound so virtuous by disagreeing with something. Typically not giving a good argument for your disagreement, but you're just virtuous because you disagree with something that's, you know, politically incorrect. Or disagreeing with something, even though you have no idea what you're talking about, but you want to look virtuous, right? And here's Judas, and Judas is like, this is terrible. Oh, by the way, how much is, G- uh, how much is Judas going to take for betraying Jesus? <laughs> A lot less than this. Talk about ironic. But here, oh, oh, what, a, what an unthoughtful thing. Because you know we're God's children, you know, we're disciples of Jesus, and, and you know, we're first and foremost, above all else, we're we're seeking the good of the poor. Isn't it interesting how many times corruption and vileness hides behind the virtue signaling of taking care of the poor? There is a, we're supposed to love the poor. Don't misunderstand. But that's for a different text at a different time. Here it's, isn't it interesting how many times devotion to Jesus, the one true worthy one of supreme devotion is avoided and ignored because of some other virtuous activity. That's what's happening here. The Lord of glory is there who will take away their sins if they trust in Him. And here we have the virtue signaling activity of Judas. Oh, Judas, good point. Right? And we can assume all the other disciples were Baptists because all believers were back in the first century. I'm being sarcastic. So that knowing they would agree with Him, they would have said, what? Amen. Amen, brother. Or, or maybe like the charismatics do sometimes. You go to a charismatic prayer meeting and people are talking. They're just, what would they do? Mmm, 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 mmm. <laughs> All right, sorry if I offended you. They would be in agreement, in other words. And the, the guy is totally wrong. Totally wrong. But he's the one that we probably would be drawn to as right because we don't see Jesus for who he is. And Jesus is the ultimate one worthy of of everything because he will provide what no one can provide. 
He actually is what rich people and poor people need. Right? He's the one. Now let's move on. Verse 6. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge over the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Almost three times as much as he'll accept to betray Jesus. Verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And by the way, Jesus is saying, She's right, and, and he's suggesting, and this would be appropriate, I'm worthy. And if I would have said that, I would be what? An egomaniac. A total, arrogant, inappropriate, sinful person. Right? But if Jesus really is who He says He is, and He really is the resurrection and the life, and He really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He is the Passover Lamb, this is appropriate. And so He can tell Judas, shut up! She's right. I'm him. And I'm going to give myself over to be crucified. This is exciting. This is wonderful. But it's ironic. Then verse 8 says, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Maybe a good takeaway at least would be that the the emphasis has got to be on Christ because He's the solution to everyone's eternal problems, not just temporal problems. Again, this doesn't mean we don't care about people's temporal issues. But ultimately, in the end, people need eternal life. And so the focus has got to be on Christ ultimately, supremely. It makes me even think about the Apostle Paul for a moment. If I could, you know, even later on when he talks about the gospel is of first importance, there are other important things. But there's one thing that's most important because it puts Christ at the, he's at the center of the whole thing. But we should move on. Number five, final irony. Priests. We have priests. Priests are ironic. Not ironic. There is an ironic priesthood, but... Those of you who grew up going to Sunday school class, maybe snickered, maybe you groaned. The rest of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> it's because you haven't read your Old Testament, but you can. Let's go on. Let's go on to number, f- number uh, 5, verse 9. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. They're amazed by the messianic sign and they should be amazed by the messianic sign. This is extraordinary. This is amazing. I want to see. And they're coming in droves at this populated time. That sets up the irony of verse 10. Verse 10, so the chief priests who should be all about Passover, who should be all about anticipating the ultimate coming Messiah, 
They should be at the front of the line, right? They should be driving the buses. Let's show you reality. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been preaching about. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And as the old expression goes, that is sick and wrong. And it's the irony of priests. Priests are good. Priests are important. Priests are vital. Because there has to be atonement for sin. So there can be forgiveness. So there can be reconciliation. And God established the priesthood. And their job, at this point in time, is to see Jesus as the anticipated one, the lamb, the exclamation point, the fulfillment, the, if you want to use fancy terminology, they've been functioning in the world of types, anticipations, and now we have the antitype fulfillment. That was their job. It's a good job. And the irony is, they want to kill the lamb, not to provide atonement, but to get rid of him. Further irony will come because Jesus is the great high priest. Further irony will come because he's the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the priest that they should have seen as the priest who would cause them to be on unemployment. And it would be glorious unemployment. They'll have no part of it. He's a threat to them and to their status. It's very ironic. Fake, fake priests. Well, before we uh, enjoy the supper together, I want to move from the ancient world of 2,000 years ago to the old world of 150 years ago. And I wish I were, were the orator that uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was. Um, I'm not. But I like the way he ends his sermon on this text. And it's old English. But you can understand what he's getting at. And he's appealing to people like you as a pastor of a church with people who are believers and unbelievers regarding Passover Jesus and the need to avoid what you deserve. He says this, There is another hour coming, dear friends, when we shall all stand before God's bar, judge. And then God will say, Angel of death, thou once didst smite Egypt's firstborn. Thou knowest thy prey, unsheath thy sword. Saying there's another day coming when God is going to call upon his angel of death. It's going to be like that day. And he's going to say, you know how to do this. You've done it before. You and I, Spurgeon says to the congregation, are standing amongst them. It is a solemn moment. All men and women stand in suspense. There is neither hum nor murmur. The very stars cease to shine lest the light should disturb the air by its motion. All is still 
God says, Hast thou sealed those that are mine? I have, says Gabriel. They are sealed by blood, every one of them. Then saith he next, Sweep with thy sword of slaughter. Sweep the earth and send the unclothed, the unpurchased, the unwashed ones to the pit. Oh, how shall we feel, beloved, when for a moment we see that angel flap his wings? He is just about to fly, but will the doubt cross our minds? Perhaps he will come to me. Spurgeon says, oh no, we shall stand and look the angel full in his face. Behold, shall I stand in that great day, the saints say. For who ought to my charge shall lay, while through thy blood absolved I am from sin's tremendous curse and shame. Absolution. I'm going to look that angel right in the eye. And Spurgeon says, if we have the blood on us, we shall see the angel coming. We shall smile at him. We shall dare to come even to God's face and say, Great God, I'm clean. Through Jesus' blood, I'm clean. But if my hearer, thine unwashen spirit shall stand, unshriven before its maker, if thy guilty soul shall appear with all its black spots upon it, unsprinkled with the purple tide, that is the blood, how wilt thou speak when thou seest flash from the scabbard the angel's sword swift for death and winged for destruction, and when it shall cleave you asunder? I bid you, Spurgeon says, seek that sprinkled blood and I urge you by the love of your own soul, by everything that is sacred and eternal to labor to get this blood of Jesus sprinkled on your souls. It is the blood sprinkled that saves the sinner. In other words... Believe on the Lord Jesus. It's a command in the Bible. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for Jesus who voluntarily came to give himself up for us. Thank you that you won't give us what we deserve if we're resting in your son, Jesus. Thank you that he is the resurrection and the life. Thank you that by, by trusting in him, we can have a confidence. We can look to you and we can smile. And indeed have a joy that is unspeakable and unsearchable that cannot be taken away no matter what. And Lord, I also would ask that you would do what only you can do and that would be that you would grant saving faith where it's not been found. And that you would bring conviction of sin and that you would bring everything necessary by the power of the Spirit and then grant saving faith to those who don't have it. That they might be able to look to you and smile. Lord, thank you for uh, the simplicity and the profoundness uh, of the, the bread and the wine. Thank you that we're reminded 
even supernaturally by the power of the Spirit through your word, we are reminded that salvation is of the Lord. And it's complete and it's sure. And we rest in one whose work is done. May this be a great act of worship for us. In Jesus' name, amen.